Good morning. I need you to warm up a little bit this morning. So good morning. I'm actually going to have you say something to your neighbor in a little bit. So I need to make sure you guys are awake for this. Hope you're having a good morning. Looking forward to tomorrow off for mission and outreach. And I'm excited to have a team of seven of you coming to our church, some of you tonight and some of you tomorrow. Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. We are going to have more of a topical type study for the first half of, this, of our time, and the second half is going to be a lot of practical sort of workshop-like um, training, I guess, or equipping for ministry. Hear then the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples before he flies up to heaven, literally, physically flies up to heaven in the next verses. But right before that, this is what he says to them. Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, disciples, 11 disciples, apostles, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you have told us through your son that he is the vine and we are the branches. And apart from him, we can't do anything. We can't bear any good fruit. For apart from Christ, we can do nothing. But if you, Lord Jesus, abide in us and we abide in you and your words abide in us, we can ask what we will in your name and we will bear much fruit to the glory of the Father. So that's what we're asking now, Lord. We want your words to abide in us. We want to self-consciously abide in Jesus Christ, the vine who gives life because of his death and resurrection for us. May your Holy Spirit use this time to shape us among the many hundreds of messages that these brothers and sisters hear in their college career. Let this do its small part in, de in depositing and shaping their lives to be fruitful for your glory for their whole lives. So we ask for your help now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on Monday, just by way of review, we talked about not shrinking in shame, but sharing in the pain of gospel ministry. The apostle Paul did that. He was calling Timothy to do that. Jesus Christ is our model for that. And so that's what we talked about on Monday. We share in the pain of gospel suffering by fanning into flame our gift, the gift of the spirit in us, the new spirit within us, and the gift of ministry. We, fan, or we share in the pain of gospel ministry by remembering God's gifts, namely that he saved us from all eternity, and he saved us in time when Christ came in history. And then we share in the pain of suffering for the gospel by grabbing or holding on to the gospel and guarding the gospel. That's what we talked about on Monday. Today I want to talk about your gospel identity. Pete mentioned in his prayer, I'm not sure if it was his prayer or in his words, but we are the slaves of Jesus Christ. We're the slaves of God. That's our identity. That's who we are. I want to talk about another gospel identity this morning. But before that, let me, let, let me help us think about why it's important to know your identity. So let me give you a spoiler alert. I'm going to spoil a movie for you. So if you haven't seen this movie, just cover your ears. 
when I'm done, your neighbor will just tap you on the shoulder. It's okay to listen again. So if you haven't seen Lion King by now, <laughs> sorry, I'm going to spoil it, but here it is. So Simba gets to meet his dead father. There's the, there's the spoiler. His, his dad dies. Um, he's killed by someone else. I won't spoil that part, maybe. Um, he's killed, and the, the point is, his dad was the king. He's supposed to be the king, but he runs away because he feels a false guilt that it was his fault that his dad died. And so a crazy monkey sees Simba and says, I know your father, he's still alive. Simba gets excited. He runs through a little forest of stuff, and then he gets to a little pond, and he says, he's right there. And he looks down, he sees his reflection. All of a sudden, he says, look harder, looks harder. The reflection turns into his dad's reflection, and then his dad shows up in the clouds. Okay, this is a cartoon, obviously it's not true, but so <laughs> there's his dad in the clouds in the shape of, a, of, of Mufasa, the king, and he says, you have forgotten me. No, dad, I haven't forgotten you. Yes, you've forgotten me. You have forgotten who you are, therefore you have forgotten me. You are my son, the one true king. Remember who you are. Remember. 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 Right? And then, then he goes away. But what's, what's the point there? Simba, you forgot your identity. You forgot who you are. You're, the, you're my son. You're the king. And you're not living according to your identity. In other words, you are living believing you're someone else. And when you live out of that false identity, your actions always follow. They do. So who are you? Who are we? And who do, you, who do you think you are? You know when someone crosses you and upsets you? A very famous question people ask back is, who do you think you are? That's a very perceptive question when you think about it. Because it's saying, not only what are you doing as you're offending me, but what you're doing is coming out of what you believe about who you are. So whoever you think you are flows into the actions of how you live your life. So how do you answer that question? Who are you? This is a very important question to answer. And actually, you gotta answer it for every moment of your life because we get kind of schizophrenic. We kind of think we're someone one moment, then we think we're someone else another moment, and that's why we change actions from righteousness to sin and back from sin to righteousness. So who do you think you are? You need to know that because who, whoever you think you are, it inevitably, constantly, and perfectly expresses itself in your thoughts, your motives, your emotions, your decisions, your actions, and your relationships. You can't avoid it any more than I could avoid being male, being a Filipino-American in descent, being one who speaks and reads and thinks in English. I can't change those things. That's, that's part of who I am. And whoever you think you are, you can't change the fact that that's going to flow out in your words and in how you live your life. It always finds expression in your life. So maybe another way to answer the question, who do you think you are, is not to just share your opinion, but to actually look at your actions and look at the fruit of your life. That will prove who you think you are. Now, Paul understood this. And so he understood if you're going to be an evangelist or if you're going to live a holy life, you can't just give a bunch of rules. Rules are important. They're necessary. But you can't just start there. You actually have to start with changing your sense of identity of who you think you are. And that's what Ephesians does. In the book of Ephesians, turn to Ephesians. I did say we're going to go all over the place. So look at Ephesians with me. In Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul doesn't really give commands. 
He said God chose you, God elected you, God redeemed you in chapter one, God gave you his Holy Spirit in chapter one, you have this resurrection power in your life, I pray that your eyes would be open to see it. In chapter two, you are dead in your sins, you're made alive in Christ, you are two separate bodies of people, God made you one in Christ. God's glory of the, of the church is being shown to the heavenly places and the heavenly authorities, chapter three. There's not that many commands in chapters one through three. But what's the first word in chapter four, verse one? What's the first word in chapter four, verse one? Therefore, based on who you are and who God is and what he's done in your life, therefore, and then you get a machine gun of commands. Chapters four through six is command after command after command after command after command. But it's all flowing out of your sense of identity, who you think you are. And so, Mufasa was actually biblical, if you think about it, because look at chapter 211 of Ephesians. There's actually only one command, one main command in the first three chapters. It's in 211 and 212. I'll read it from my translation. So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel. So what's the command in verse 11? To what? Remember who you are. Remember who you were and remember who you are now. Again, sense of identity flowing into how you live. This is what we would call the Nike method. And I've said this, I, this was four years ago, five years ago. So this is a whole new class of students. This is the Nike method versus the gospel method of sanctification. The Nike method of sanctification is what? Just do it. Just stop lying. Just evangelize. Just kill sin in your life. Just confess it. Just repent. The gospel method is not just do it, it's God is the doer who did it, making you a doer who will do it. Marketing majors, business majors, entrepreneurs, there, take that and start a new brand. Maybe you'll do as well as Nike. God is the doer who did it, making you a doer who will do it. That probably won't sell, but that's, that's the gospel method. First, who is God? He's the doer. He did it. And that changes who you are, and therefore now you go do what you need to do based on who you now are in Christ Jesus. So those are four, four things I want to break up my teaching time for the next hopefully 10 minutes, no more than 13 minutes here, on who is God, what has he done, who are we, and then how shall we live our lives, okay? God's identity, God's actions, our identity, our actions. And then from here I want to spend the last 10, 15 to 20 minutes on practical how-to, okay, on this part. But before we get there, let's start over here. Who is God and what is he like? There's a lot of things we could say about God, but the identity I'm aiming at, the thing we need to know about God is he's omnipresent. That means that God is what? Everywhere, right? God is everywhere. He dwells in heaven and he desires to dwell on earth. So God is everywhere. We need to know that about God's identity and characteristic. He's omnipresent, yet at the same time, God can concentrate his presence in a particular place while still remaining omnipresent. Did you know that? God can concentrate his presence in a specific place. So for example, Moses is there in the wilderness shepherding sheep and he sees a burning bush, right? He approaches the burning bush because it's burning but it's not being consumed. And as he approaches it, he hears a voice that says, remove your what? Sandals for you are standing on holy ground. Now Moses could have said, bad theology, bad theology. 
God is everywhere. Everywhere's holy ground, right? Wrong, you're not gonna correct God when he confronts you in a burning bush. Your theology is wrong. Just because you're omnipresent, don't take that to its logical conclusion that God can't concentrate his presence in, in a specific place, right? That's good theology because God is the, he's, he's God. So anything he says is good theology. And that's why we follow his word. So the point here is that God can concentrate his theology, or not his theology, sorry. He can concentrate his presence in a particular place. Like when he made the garden of Eden, that was only one place in the whole earth. But he was doing what in the garden before Adam ate the fruit? He was walking in the garden with them, right? Concentrating his presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But what about omnipresence? He's everywhere. Yeah, he's everywhere, but to be absent from your body is to be present in the Lord in a concentrated presence of God where his glory is most manifest, okay? So that's who God is. He's omnipresent, but he can manifest himself in a concentrated place and does with his presence of blessing. Now, that's who he is. What does God do? Does he just stay omnipresent everywhere, or does he, does he actually try to live with, with humans? He actually tries to live with humans. I already told you in the Garden of Eden, he was there, living with them, but when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, he kicked them out of the garden, they couldn't live with them anymore. And then, you have several chapters of Bible history before God moves back to earth. Do you know when God comes back to earth to live on earth again? In the what? In the tabernacle, right? So for a long time, you're kicked out of the garden. You can't live where God lives. And then all of a sudden, you know, he manifests himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth. 400 years of slavery. And then Moses. And even then, 10 plagues gets him out of Egypt. Not until the tabernacle is built does God actually move back to earth in some concentrated way. And when he does at the end of Exodus, smoke fills the, the tabernacle. People are running out. And the glory of God can be seen right there in front of everyone. God moves back to earth. So that's a tabernacle. That was, a, tra that was a, a mobile home, so to speak, right? And then he moves from the tabernacle to what? The temple built by Solomon. Then that temple was destroyed because they broke the law covenant of Moses. So then God leaves again. Actually, in Ezekiel, there's the imagery of, of the glory of God going out of the temple over the mountain and then back up to heaven where God's glory is gone from the earth again. Just like the Garden of Eden, you got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, presence gone. Now you're kicked out of the land of Israel, presence is gone. Does God come back again? John 1.14. Turn to John 1.14. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. And you know, what is, what's another word for dwelt? What's the literal word there? tabernacled among us. Even non-Greek majors know that, right? Especially here at the Master College. He tabernacled among us, bringing back the imagery of God living on earth in a concentrated way, incarnate in the very human body of Jesus the Messiah. Well, Jesus doesn't hang around too long. Go to John 14. John 14. Jesus doesn't hang around too long. What happens is, he dies and goes to heaven, and then he promises something in John 14, 26. He says, the counselor of the Holy Spirit, the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things. So I'm out of here, but when I leave, who am I going to send? The who, the who? The Holy Spirit. And now God will live in his people. So now, now who's the temple? We are. The churches. Universal church expressed in local churches. And then an offshoot of that is our own bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The point is, 
God moves back to earth. And just what I read in my devotions this morning, Revelation 21, verse 3, God in the new heavens and the new earth, he comes back down, and now the whole earth becomes the temple. It's described as a cube in Revelation 21, 16, and the only cube in the Old Testament is the Holy of Holies. So now we will live in the blazing presence of God's face, no matter where we are on earth, forever. He lives with us on earth. Okay, so that's who God is. What does he do? He, he comes back to earth and dwells among, amongst us. Now, who are we? Who are we? Well, if, if God's spirit dwells in you, then who are you? What's your identity? Here's the identity now. You are the what? The temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at your neighbor and tell them you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. All right, assuming you're a Christian, good. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, um, last, last Wednesday, I was at a, a mayor's prayer breakfast with, a, with an African-American brother who's preaching, and he, he did a few of those things. I was like, man, this is cool. We should do this more often. You're actually preaching, you're actually gospelizing each other when you tell each other that. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you if you're a Christian. Now let's get some Bible for this. 1 Corinthians, 13, 1 Corinthians 3. I have a few verses in 1 Corinthians, and then we're... One in Ephesians, one in John, and then all practical after that. Okay, so let's go 1 Corinthians 3. You already know this because you already said you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but let me just show you that God actually says it so that we ground our statements in truth. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Don't you yourselves know that you are what? You are God's temple or you're God's sanctuary, you're God's holy place, and that the Spirit of God lives in you. Not you individually, you corporately, you church at Corinth, you local church. God's spirit lives in you. Um, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but just since we're here, look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, what is that? What's God's temple? The, the church. You are the church. And if anyone destroys the church, what will God do? God will destroy him. Those are, those are fighting words right there. God will destroy him. Why? Because God's sanctuary is holy, and that is what you are. That's your identity. You are the temple. That's who you are because of God. Now, how did God make us the temple? Go to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2.13. This is where paper Bibles are superior to phone Bibles, probably, when you're flipping around. Um, Ephesians 2.13. But now you are in Christ Jesus. You who are far away have been brought near by the what of the Messiah? Brought near by the what? By the blood. So what did Christ do to make us near to him? He died for us, right? He shed his blood for us. Go to verse 17. What did God do again? When the Messiah came, he proclaimed good news, the gospel of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's the gospel, right? Jesus dying for our sins, rising from the dead, giving us access to the Father in the person of the Holy Spirit. So this is the gospel work of what Christ has done and what does that make us in Ephesians 2, verse 20? Ephesians 2, 20. I'm sorry, or 21. The whole building being put together by, by him grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. How did you become the, 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 the temple of the Holy Spirit? By Christ dying for you. By Christ rising for you. By the gospel. Applied to your life, you became the temple of the Holy Spirit, and now that is who you are. Again, 
You live out your sense of identity. One pastor has said, when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. When you know who you are, you'll know what to do. And if you forget who you are, you don't know what you're doing. So, spoiler alert number two, let me spoil another movie for you, okay? One more movie to spoil, just to bring out the point again. Star Wars, okay? Episode five. Sorry if you haven't seen it. You should have seen it by now. Um, Empire Strikes Back. Shame on you if you haven't seen it. Um, Empire Strikes Back. The big, the big thing at the end of that movie is that Luke's, or who's Darth Vader? He's what? You spoil it. Who's, who's Darth Vader? Luke's father, okay? Luke's father, <laughs> sorry, Pete. Yeah. Um, Luke's father is Darth Vader. And so you get to episode six, the emperor is electrocuting um, Luke on the floor, and Darth Vader has an identity crisis, right? He's standing there, and he's like looking at his son, looking at his master, looking at his son, looking at his master, and there's an identity crisis. Am I the loyal apprentice of the emperor who wanted to recruit my son to, to, to oust the emperor, the sort of loyal apprentice? Am I that guy? Am I the, the, the Sith Lord? Or am I Luke's dad because my son is getting electrocuted? And you see him looking back and forth and there's an identity crisis. Who am I? Because who I think I am is going to dictate what I do, right? And to spoil it even more, he chose, he, he realized that he's Luke's dad. And so he becomes the chosen one who kills the emperor, okay? And so by throwing him down a hole, I guess. <laughs> Jedis are so strong, but you throw him down a hole and he dies. I don't get it. Anyways, um, they survive everything except that, apparently. So the point here is that you live out who you think you are. Even Darth Vader does, Simba does, so do you. And so the way you're going to grow as a Christian is by learning how to kind of navigate your way through your identity, your identity crises, okay? So here's what Jonathan Dodson, he wrote this book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship. He points out three ways to, to, to grow in sanctification, to grow as a Christian. Here are the three ways. Number one, identify your identity of the moment. Because who you think you are in that moment. Identify your identity of the moment. Number two, fight your alter ego. Fight the false identity with the truth of who you truly are. Number three, trust your savior, trust the gospel, and identify with Christ. Okay? Identify your false identity. Who do you think you are? Fight that alter ego. Resolve to fight it. And then trust in Christ, that's what you do with the gospel. You trust the gospel. Trust in Christ, repent from thinking that's, that your false identity is your true identity, and trust Christ to help you to fight to believe who you truly are. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're fighting guilt due to pornography. So you give in to the temptation of pornography. What's your identity of the moment? I am a guilty porn addict who will never win and has to live in shame, secrecy, and frustration forever. That's who I am. Then number two, you fight your alter ego. You declare, you declare war on that sin and you speak against it with a declaration that God has actually made you someone different. And then you trust in Christ who made you who you are, namely the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that you're purchased by Christ Jesus. That's actually biblical. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. 15 minutes, we gotta hustle here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, there's the command, run from, or flee from what? Sexual immorality. Now go to verse 19. Don't you know that your body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? 
There's an identity. Why should you flee sexual immorality? Why should you fight lust? Because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. You are not your own. Here's the gospel, verse 20. You are what? You are what? Bought with a price. The cross, right? Therefore what? What's the action that flows out of your identity now? Glorify God with your body. You see how that all works together? Your actions flow out of who you think you are, and who you are is determined by what God has done. Namely, bought you with a price. So therefore, remember who you are. You are not just a guilty porn addict in this point. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, purchased by Christ. Your body is his, your eyes are his, your mind is his. Remember that. And remember that you're forgiven. So you, so you go to the cross again, and you try to live that out by faith. Okay, so that's who you are. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we do? I just told you partly, as you remind yourself of, the, of your identity. But this is outreach week, so I want to be practical for outreach week. If you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, what are you trying to do? Here's what Acts 1.8 says. When you get the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit has come on you, you will be my what? Witnesses. There's another identity. The temple is a witness to Jesus Christ. They testify of Jesus Christ. So here's how we state the temple identity in our church. Because the Spirit indwells, leads, and builds, and empowers us, He sends us to expand and fill the earth with His presence, His concentrated presence, by showing and sharing Jesus with others. You know that the temple is supposed to expand? Remember Adam and Eve? In the garden, command was what? Be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth. And as you do that, you're actually expanding the garden to cover the whole earth, which actually happens in Revelation 21 and 22. And when you share the gospel... Do they become part of the temple when they believe in Christ? And what are you doing? You're expanding the temple. When you share the gospel with the lost, you're expanding the temple. When you strengthen a Christian and they, they start to share the gospel with the lost, you're expanding the temple. That's what you're doing in outreach week and outreach year and outreach the rest of your life. You're expanding the temple by showing and sharing Jesus because of who you are so that the whole glory of God in his presence fills the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's your mission. Don't live for the American dream. Live for this mission. Okay, well, let me give you one more verse. We really have to get to practical stuff or else I'll just go all day. John 7. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 37. And then we'll, we'll, we'll think about how to practically do this. If you're going to be the temple... What do you do? You're expanding the presence of God by gospelizing, sharing life and sharing Christ with Christians and non-Christians. Here's one more verse on this push, and then we'll, we'll get practical, more practical. John 7:37 says this. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and drink. Are people thirsty in the world for Christ? Are people thirsty for significance and for God? Yes, they don't know that, but they are. So they need Jesus, right? They need to drink Jesus. He's the water of life. How are they going to get Jesus? Look at verse 38. The one who believes in me, so you're a believer now, as scripture has said, what will you have if you're a believer? You'll have streams of living water flow from deep within you. So all of a sudden, you become a spring where living water flows out of your mouth and life to people who are thirsty. And, and how does this flow out of you? Read on verse 39. He said this about who? How do you become a spring? You were going, uh, he said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive who? The Spirit. And when you receive the Holy Spirit, you become the temple of God, and you also become a spring of life. So this place 
should be, we should be drowning in living water here at the Master's College. Conversations in the dorm, conversations before chapel begins, conversations on the way out in the, in the, in the dining hall. There should be water of life all over the place. It should just be flooded, right? Because the Spirit's in us and out from us is flowing living water in our conversation, gospelizing. And when we're with non-Christians, same thing. Water just flows out because of who we are, namely the temple of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I want to give you nine practical exercises to do to grow in gospelizing in a gospelizing lifestyle, okay? Nine practical exercises to do, and you practice these things hopefully to, to grow as, well, to grow in gospel fluency. You know what fluency is, right? Once you get fluent in another language, you start to dream in that language, and you're not translating in your mind anymore, you're just speaking that language, you're thinking in that language, and you see everything from that language. It's the same thing with gospel fluency. When you're fluent in the gospel, you see the gospel everywhere, you see the glory of Christ pointing to the cross and resurrection everywhere. And your theology all, all of a sudden has a center point and it all comes together as you look at the world. So let me give you nine exercises. I won't give you all nine due to the time. We'll just get as many as we can get. Number one, know and rehearse the gospel regularly to each other and to yourself. Know the gospel message. So here's workshop time. I'm gonna give you one minute. Okay, get a partner. Look at, look at your partner right now. If you don't know them, just introduce your name and say you got good news for them because you're about to give them the gospel. Now, what you're going to do is, you guys need to listen here because I need to make sure we get time because I, I need to get through other suggestions. One minute for you to share the gospel with your partner. Next minute, the other person shares the other way, and then I'm going to bring it together and we're going to continue, okay? Go, right now, go, one minute. Fifteen seconds. Is this on? Fifteen seconds. Ten seconds. Okay, time. Time. Stop. 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 All right, switch. Ready? Go. Okay, stop. Stop, everyone. Stop. All right. Thank you for doing that. By the way, 
I am aware in a crowd this size, there are some people who don't know the gospel or who aren't Christian. So I don't know if you realize, but you could actually be sharing the gospel with someone and they could even become a Christian right now. Some people are required to be here at chapel and don't want to be here. And they're bored. Every, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And God, in his kindness to you, if you're, if you're one of the people who are always regularly bored about Bible and God and Jesus, God is kind to you to require you to go to chapel. And he's so kind to you to actually give someone to share the gospel with you right there. So I want you to feel God's kindness. He's actually drawing you. You might feel like this is a chore, but it's God's love and kindness trying to draw you in to him. What is the gospel? The gospel is about Jesus Christ. He, he lived for us. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. That's the gospel, Christ. Now, you could ask the question, why did he have to die? Because we are sinners, and the wages of sin is death, so there's sin. But why is sin such a big deal? Because God is holy and righteous, and therefore our sin deserves eternal wrath. So you got God, man, Christ. Does that mean everyone goes to heaven now because Christ died and rose? No, what do you have to do? Repent from your sins and believe in Christ. That's the gospel. God is holy and made us. We're sinners on our way to hell because God is righteous. Christ lived for us, died for us, and rose for us. So that if you, and God's actually telling you right now, right here, to repent from your sins and trust in him right here in chapel. And he'll forgive you, he'll save you, he'll give you his Holy Spirit, and he'll begin to transform your life. Okay, know that, rehearse it regularly, and don't get bored of it. And you know, just to be honest, I get bored of it sometimes. And I'm just asking God, Lord, make me appreciate your love every time I hear it. Okay, that's number one. Number two, okay, practice number two. Listen to a person's story and identify the gospel story alongside it. What do I mean by that? So here, here's the main point. As you gospelize Christians and non-Christians, listen to their story, which means don't assume you know who they are. Don't assume you know what, what's going on in their mind. You ask questions and you inquire. Everyone has a creation, fall, redemption story. Creation is who they think they are, where they think they came from, and where do they think they're going. The fall is what they think the biggest problem in their life is. The redemption is their solution to that problem. So for singles, their biggest problem generally, again, you have to listen to get specifically where the idol is, but it's that they're single and they want to find a, a spouse or a, a boyfriend or girlfriend. So their, God, their redemption is what? Finding that significant other. If you're a young parent, the biggest problem in their life is how they keep everything, everything together and make sure their kids grow up right. What's their redemption? Being an excellent parent who raises perfect kids. You get the point? The point is everyone has a story. If you're retired, if you're a young, if you're a young parent, if you're a young professional, your, 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 your fall is my career's not working out. And so what's their, their gospel for them is, well, if I get the right job and the right career, then I'll, then I'll have life. No, you won't. No, you won't. And then you gospelize. I have good news for you. Whether you have your job or not, God will provide your needs in Christ Jesus. So trust in him and, and go to him and let's pray to him right now. You, you get that? So listen to the story. Listen for their creation, fall, redemption. What are they believing? And then apply the gospel specifically to their beliefs. That's number two. Let's see, we got a little bit more time. Number three, learn the story of the Bible and learn how every story of the Bible points to Jesus. So let's say someone's struggling with depression. Can you think of any Bible stories that deal with depression? Elijah, perhaps, right? Um, what if you're dealing with someone who feels betrayed by someone? Jesus, right? You can point to Jesus, he was betrayed. David was betrayed. 
if you've been lied to or someone's lying to you. You could think of stories in the Bible, so then start to tell those stories and then show how that story actually points to Jesus. That takes a lot more time than I have right now. But the point is, you have, you're here at the Master's College in your Bible classes, in chapel. Think about the stories of the Bible, how they point to Jesus, and then relate those stories to people, Christians or non-Christians. Just say, hey, there's a story of the Bible that kind of relates to what you're going through. Let me tell you the story, and let me show you how it points to Jesus. Number, that's number three. Number four, focus on Christ during communion. So when you're at church and you take communion once a month or once a week or once every other month or whatever, before you take communion, identify why you need the gospel in that moment. God, I'm feeling guilty right now for this reason. Or I feel ashamed. Or I feel really proud and arrogant towards my roommate. I need this bread and I need this cup not because there's mystical transubstantiation, but because this reminds me that your body was broken for my pride and my self-righteousness. And this blood was spilled so that as I confess my sin, you'll transform my life to be a more loving roommate. I need this communion right now. Thank you for it, Lord. In a healthy church that practices it, maybe they could even preach it to each other. But if your church doesn't have that kind of openness, you just got to preach it to yourself there. But you do that enough times, you'll learn how to preach the gospel to other people in their real stuff of life and not just God, man, Christ, faith. Shoot a gospel bullet, drive by, and then go away, right? Not, you know, no, you're actually going to know how to apply it to real life because you do it to yourself all the time. Um, I'm trying to figure out which ones to choose here. I'll give you three, three more maybe. Here, here's one, four, four G's. Okay, four G's, and actually, I want you to, to, to do this when you, I'm, I'm going to have you turn to your neighbor just to say a short statement here, but here's the point. Do you know this? Every biblical truth, God showed me this this morning as I was reflecting and preparing again. Every biblical truth is a gift from God because of the gospel. There's not one biblical truth here that's not a gift of God to you in the gospel. At the same time, if you're not a Christian, every biblical truth is a threat apart from the gospel. Right? So, share biblical truths with Christians, how it's good news. Share biblical truths with non-Christians as an invitation to make it good news by pointing to Jesus. Okay, so here's, here's four ways, and I'll have you say it to each other. Four G's about God. Here's four truths you could say at almost any moment to minister to people. Listen first, but then here's four things to say. Number one, God is good, so you don't have to look elsewhere. You ever talk to someone and they're just feeling like, I just need so, this thing in my life, and you just say, hey, I got good news for you. God is good that you don't need to look elsewhere. Say that to your neighbor. One of you is the other one. God is good, you don't have to look elsewhere. Okay, good. Number two. Okay, number two, second G. God is glorious, so you don't have to fear others. You know when someone's, someone is intimidating you or you're fearful of someone, and you feel like they're, they're huge and God is small? You have to remind yourself, God is so glorious, I don't have to fear others. Go tell your neighbor, God is glorious, you don't have to fear others. Okay, number three. Number three. This one is super relevant. I use this one maybe more than the others. God is great, so you don't have to be in control. Say that to your neighbor. That one's good for anxiety, right? Right? Pete, you're getting married soon. God is great. You don't have to be in control of all the plans and the weather and all that other stuff. That's good news, right? Isn't that great news? That we don't have to be in control because God is? This gospelizing here, okay? Fifth, uh, fourth, fourth G. So God is good, 
God is glorious, God is great. Fourth one is God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself to anyone, ultimately. Okay, but don't, don't worry about the ultimate, ultimately right now. Is God is gracious, so you don't have to prove yourself. Tell, tell your neighbor that. Good. I had to preach that to myself. I had to preach that to myself. One, another, I got, I'm actually over time. Let me give you two more, okay, just briefly. Um, compare your idols to the majesty of Jesus. And what I mean by that is, what do you really want and what's the idolatry in your life? And then compare it to Jesus and see how insignificant it is. That, that whole thing, God is gracious so you don't have to prove yourself, I was preaching that to myself this morning because I don't, I mean, I like preaching in chapel right now that I'm here. I don't like preaching in chapel here, though. I, I, get, I get nervous every time I'm a wreck. And here's why. Because I have pride and I want to impress people. And that's my idol. It's a false god. And you know what? If I do impress people, it doesn't do any good for my soul anyways, right? It's a false god with a false promise, you know. And, and you know, people don't remember the person anyways. I've, I've sat in your seat. I've, I took notes on all the sermons, and I, I could remember a few, and a few, a few preachers. But my point is, why do I want that? It's so insignificant, such a lie. But look at Jesus. He accepts me. He approves me. He justified me. He's going to use my weak efforts, telling me that my labor is not in vain. How great a God do I have that I would switch him for the idol of impressing people? Gospelize. Gospelize each other. Compare the idol to Jesus, and it's no contest every time. And you're gospelizing. One more of my three left is um, gospelize as either the sinner or the forgiver in relationships with each other. Show the gospel in the way you either ask someone for forgiveness because you sinned against them or you forgive someone because they sinned against you. What do I mean by that? Yesterday, one of my church members confessed into me and said, hey, I sinned against you, I need your forgiveness. And I said, what was the sin? And he said, well, I didn't keep my word. I told you I was going to do this thing, and I didn't do it. And then I said, oh, yeah, Matthew 5, 31, 32. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Yeah, you're right. You did sin. That was a sin against God and against me. And then I said, but you know what? Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. So you know what? God forgive me of way more than you've ever sinned against me. Of course I forgive you. That's a, that's a picture of the gospel, right? I'm leaning on the gospel. I'm expressing the gospel and forgiving. And then I ask the person, did you ask God for forgiveness yet? No, not yet. Well, I got good news for you. Gospelizing again. I got good news for you. First John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then you go to chapter 2, verse 1. That we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Good news for you, brother. When you ask God for forgiveness, he'll forgive you. And then we just start thanking God for the gospel. Isn't it great to be a Christian? Where we could just ask each other for forgiveness, ask God for forgiveness, and it's just, it's just a, a sweet privilege to be a Christian because of the gospel. So those are some practices. I have a few more. I could email it to you if you send me an email through Pete. Um, I'll email you the rest. And actually, there's other stuff online. But practice these things so that you have a lifestyle of gospelizing Christians and non-Christians, especially this week. Try some of these things and bless your neighbors by gospelizing. Father, take these words and this weak attempt and use it for your glory.
In Jesus' name, amen.